leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe from way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bougay, and with us this week, we've got a very special guest. He's a fellow sports business classroom alum. This is his second time on the program. He's a huge Los Angeles Lakers fan, Zeeshan Zaman. How's it going? Doing well, Garrett. How are you doing? Good to be back on with you. Yes, I'm doing well. It's uh, it's nice that uh, the the off season has finally calmed down a little bit. I can actually uh, pursue some other uh, hobbies of mine for the time <laughs> being. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, you of course uh, you reside in L.A. You're a big Lakers fan, and uh, I had you on last year after they got off to that uh, that 0 and three start to the season it was quite an up and down roller coaster year and this off season they you know have been the talk of the NBA there's been a lot going on so we're going to dissect all of that and uh, also at the end of the episode we both uh, separately prepared a top five teams of the decade list so we're going to get through that as well but first Zeeshan I-, I was curious uh, you know uh, I've talked a little bit about this myself on on previous episodes of the pod but I wanted to get your take on all the uh, the Magic Johnson drama that went on. Yeah, as you mentioned, kind of the whole season was a roller coaster, up and down season, and that really just continued, flowed into the off season, uh, starting with the last day. I believe it was the last game of the season, where uh, right before hour before tip off, Magic impromptu gets on the mic, has some of the media folks around, and pretty much announces he is leaving without uh, letting Genie bust know. Um, you know, initial gut feeling is, well, I always had this feeling that Magic, you know, he was never going to get fired. Genie would never fire him. The way he would leave would be with him stepping down. But at the same time, I never imagined it would be in this way where he's stepping down without telling Genie, without really letting LeBron know, you know, someone that he, you know, worked hard to get over here. Um, so I think 
that came to a surprise to all of us. But him stepping away, um, that part didn't surprise me. It just seemed like he never really enjoyed it, the lifestyle that he was living and kind of the pressure that he was under uh, being an you know managing and leading this team as a president didn't seem like he was there for that criticism and yeah, it didn't take too well to that. Well, yeah, and he was very frank about, you know, saying just that in that press conference. You know, he, he uh, didn't appreciate the fact that he, he couldn't just go out of his way to, to talk about uh, other NBA players and, and the young guys and also to, to pass out advice. You know, he being a, a legendary point guard in the, in the history of the NBA, he appreciates that role of, of being able to give advice and, and things to, to younger players and, and young stars. But yeah, it was it was really fascinating to me the the way he went about it, as you said, not informing uh, the the Lakers brass, and you know also the whole appearance on on first take and and really calling uh, Rob Palenka a lot of bad <laughs> a lot of bad things and and uh, you know kind of throwing the organization under the bus in a way uh, that uh, is kind of surprising given how much he's stated he loves uh, the Lakers organization as, as he has. Right, the whole time it felt like we're getting conflicting things from him, right? You're hearing how much he loves the organization. He sees Jeannie Buss as a sister. And at the same time, he's throwing Rob under the bus, Linda Rambis. I mean, I'm not saying that Magic is wrong in all of his criticisms or, you know, there weren't some things that were done by Rob Polinka behind his back. Would I be surprised? Probably not. But just the timing of it with the big, big free agency coming up with, you know, the potential... Uh, trade for Anthony Davis looming. Uh, I think it was just an unsettling feeling for all of the Laker fans for all of that to come out. I think we had the LA Times article that, that followed that kind of, you know, dove a little bit deeper into just the organization as a whole and some of the uh, the management style of Magic Johnson, the criticism there from some of the you know, longtime staffers. So just all around, you know, early on into the offseason uh, was not a good feeling in terms of you know, what's going to happen next and how the rest of the league would react to uh, the news coming out of L.A. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a fascinating story. Of course, Magic Johnson was, was in charge for the last several years and getting the Lakers into this position that they are now. What are your thoughts in terms of, do you think his exiting that role of, uh, you know, president of basketball ops, uh, is is a good or bad thing for the organization? And, and now that Rob Palenka is uh, pretty much fully in charge, I, I think I, I think the time that Magic came in, I, th- I thought it was a good thing. I thought it, we needed some sort of a direction just to stabilize the franchise. I think at the end of the day, Jeannie Buss is not a basketball person. She's a business person. She needed someone that she trusted in that moment. She didn't trust Jim Buss, so that's what she was looking for. Unfortunately, when Magic came in, you know, his thought was, let's hire the best person available. Now, at the same time, you probably had some influence from Kobe. You know, ma- ma- uh, you know, I could imagine Jeannie listening to him for advice in terms of who they should hire. That's where Rob Palenka comes in. So, unfortunately, I don't think Magic had kind of, you know, one of his grievances was that he didn't have the full authority to fire Luke or hire the GM that he probably wanted. Um, so, I think that just led to some of the issues that followed down the line. Um, at this point, I think it probably ended up being the best thing for him to step away. I think you see a little bit clearer structure. You, you know, now Kurt Rambis is more involved in terms of uh, dealing with some of the player personnel as well. But I think there's probably definitely a clear uh, designation hierarchy within the organization when it comes to uh, the basketball side. 
Yeah, magic. A uh, couple of his high-profile moves, of course, getting rid of, uh, getting off of Timofey Mozgov's contract in that D'Angelo Russell trade, and then also uh, getting off of the likes of uh, Jordan Clarkson's contract in that trade with Cleveland back uh, a couple of years ago, and and that really uh, freed up the the Lakers to pursue. You know, those superstar players on those max salaries and, of course, uh, getting LeBron. I don't know how uh, critical of a role Magic played in that, but uh, obviously getting, uh, at the time, the best player in the world was a huge, uh, huge get for for the Lakers organization. And now they've also made this move to sweep in and get Anthony Davis, of course, giving up the likes of uh, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart, and what seems like uh, hundreds of picks. But uh, uh, they've gotten now two stars and... Uh, now that the Warriors uh, dynasty seems to be in a transition phase, we don't have really any teams in the NBA that uh, have like three or four all-stars. It, it seems like the Lakers and that star duo of LeBron and AD are up there with anybody in the league. Yeah, I think just the season, the thought of the season coming up is so exciting. It's kind of the NBA jam era of basketball coming up with so many of the... I like that. <laughs> so something I'm really definitely looking forward to. Um, you know, with the AD trade going down, you know, if you want to kind of maybe start looking into, you know, where we started with that earlier, uh, the trade deadline this year, right? That's been kind of accumulating with, uh, you know, Dell Demps and Magic, and that trade evolved, and really, I think one of the places where the Lakers might have gotten lucky, well, they definitely got lucky, was landing the fourth pick in the draft. I think that, you know, at least from perception, from what I think a lot of it is perception. What are the Pelicans getting? And for them to say we're getting the fourth pick instead of the eleventh pick, you know, as, at least for this year, I think that helps. Um, I think earlier on when we heard you know the, the trade talks, we heard that Kyle Kuzma would be included in the trade, but maybe one less draft pick. So I think it was a, a lot of give and take. I, I, I could sense that you know Rob Palenka, this was his you know first kind of that big boy move that you know can't put it on magic it was his deal to make and um you know i think he knew at all costs i I think he had to get this deal done and in some ways david dave griffin who david griffin who is i think one of the better gms in the league uh you know could sense it and you know took advantage of it and got a pretty good haul yeah what are your thoughts on uh Obviously, getting getting Anthony Davis is is huge. He's one of the you know inarguably one of the top ten players in the league. But what are your thoughts in terms of the guy that they ended up keeping? You mentioned that they uh, they held on to Kyle Kuzma, gave away you know three of their other younger players. Kuzma, I believe, is the oldest of the bunch. He came in as an as an older rookie. But what are your thoughts on him in terms of not only Kuzma's fit with uh, LeBron and AD, but also in terms of your thoughts as as to his ceiling? Yeah, I think in terms of a ceiling, uh, you know, I definitely still feel that Lonzo and Ingram have a higher ceiling than Kuzma. But at the same time, just Kuzma from the start of the season playing with LeBron just felt like a natural fit. There wasn't really much of an adjustment to his game. I know he struggled with some of the shooting last year, and we can, we'll can get into that when we talk about the roster. But he he wasn't apprehensive at all. I think from the start, he was aggressive, he was making cuts. And I think just within the flow of the game, it seemed like he didn't have to make that adjustment. Secondly, you know, he, he was a late first-round pick, so you know he, he's under the salary control for the next couple of years. So I think that's another benefit as the Lakers tried to build out the rest of the roster to know that they have someone who has the potential to be the number three on this team, but still is cost control and you know is under contract for a couple more years. 
Yeah, and uh, not only him, but Josh Hart would have been another option because Hart was the 30th pick, so they had a couple of guys to pick from there if, yeah, if, if, you, if their main consideration was that lower salary. So, you know, looking at the fact that, again, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart didn't spend too much time in L.A., but they were there for, you know, a, a couple of years. What, is, uh, what would you say is the lasting memory of those three young players as, uh, as Los Angeles Lakers? I think especially with Ball and Ingram, it's just a lot of potential. It seems like you know we, we got glimpses of it as soon as we saw Ball starting to play well. We saw the injury last year against, against the Rockets. Uh, just felt like he was coming around, and then he would take a step back. Same thing with Ingram. We saw you know he pretty much both of the, the seasons he was with the Lakers, even when he was at Duke, he would always have a slow start to the season. As the season went on, we would see his game pick up. And then you would say, okay, going into the offseason, you kind of felt that momentum, and then the offseason would kill that momentum. You'd feel like you regressed at the start of the season. But for both um, Ingram and Ball, uh, you know, I see them as you know, starters going forward, potential all-stars for both of them. Um, I think you know, Ingram has, uh, in my opinion, Ingram has a higher ceiling. Uh, you know, but we'll see how Ball continues to progress with his shooting, and if he can just stay on the court. Um, I think his availability is the biggest question mark for him. And Hart, I just see him as a solid role player that's going to be a fit for any team going forward. I could see him having a 10, 12 year uh, career in the league, just you know, uh, being a great player off the bench and being a spot starter whenever needed. Yeah, as far as the haul David Griffin got, I, I thought it was pretty good. You know, I, I agree. I think all three of those guys. You know, a couple of them have the high ceiling, but I think all three of them are, are at least quality rotation pieces. And then you also mentioned uh, Griff getting that uh, fourth pick from the Lakers as well with the Lakers jumping in the lottery. He was able to turn that into picks 8, 17, and 35. And in Summer League, the Pelicans were maybe the, the, the most enjoyable team to watch in terms of those youngsters and seeing what they could do. Uh, but uh, the the other big decision Palinka made, uh, you know, along with the, the AD trade was bringing in Frank Vogel as head coach, you know, uh, that was another one of the things that Magic talked about as to why he was leaving, as he wasn't happy that he didn't have total freedom in terms of firing Luke Walton. But eventually that happened, and they've brought in Frank Vogel, who's a veteran coach, has, has, uh, you know, had had some success, especially in his years in Indiana. What are your thoughts as far as uh, Vogel being under the helm? I thought Vogel did a great job when he was in Indiana, probably didn't have that talent to work with in Orlando. Looking at kind of that Vogel hiring, I still think that, I don't know how if that's the Palenka hiring, I think that still goes back to the Kurt Rambis. Um, you know, there's still rumors around how much influence Phil Jackson has on the organization, but you know, Vogel, I think early 2000s, was a scout for the Lakers, so he had some work with, uh, you know, worked closely with Rambis and Phil Jackson, so I think there was some fit there you see kind of, um, you know, some of the controversy around uh, the Lakers picking and choosing some of his assistants there as well, uh, bringing in Jason Kidd, Lionel Hollins, who, you know, also worked closely with Phil and uh, Kurt Rambis in the past. So um, I think Vogel overall, you know, defensively, we know he's a defensive coach. He's got some great schemes. So I'm interested to see how, you know, taking the the year off, how his uh, kind of some of his offensive schemes have uh, improved. I know he's uh, spent time with various teams, uh, Quinn Snyder, uh, Brad Stevens, over, you know, during his time off. So it's interesting to see, you know, what he's learned, what he's picked up, and what he's looking to incorporate with this team. Yeah, I think the most fascinating thing for me is you mentioned uh, his success in Indiana. That was mostly predicated on the defensive side of the floor. 
So the the thing that interests me the most in terms of what I'm going to be keeping an eye on, you know, in the early uh, portion of the season with with the Lakers is just sort of what is this team's identity? Are they going to be just this dominant defensive team? Or are they going to be you know this this more dominant offensive group? What do you imagine it's going to end up being? Yeah, I, I think it, I'm a little concerned with some of the defensive pieces in terms of uh, at least on the guard play. Um, I know there's talks about you know moving LeBron to point guard, which you know which is really what he's been doing his whole career in terms of, from an offensive standpoint. But defensively, I think it'll be interesting to see. You know, you have a solid defensive player in Danny Green, but who the, is that other guard that will play next to him? Especially you know when you think of the West and kind of the duo backcourt. So you have the Conley Mitchell, you have the Lillard McCullum, uh, you know you have the Harden Westbrook now. Um, and, and not even to mention the Clippers with Beverly and George or uh, George and Leonard. Either way, you know, who's going to be that second guard? Is it, you know, Avery Bradley or KCP? Because I, I think that's one of the areas where, you know, you can put Danny Green on one of the guys, but, you know, I don't see LeBron chasing around a CJ McCollum or Russell Westbrook. So I, I think that's going to be a key question that we'll see answered early in the season. I think offensively, I just think, you know, with the players they have, I think the team constructed around AD and LeBron. I, I don't know how much coaching Vogel will do on that end. I think there's going to be a lot of pick and rolls and pin down screens that we'll see. But um, I, I think he can uh, definitely make an impact uh, defensively early on. I think that's where, uh, you know, he'll have to make his greatest impact in coaching. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's a really good point. That with with LeBron, you don't uh, you know most of his teams, their offense isn't really an offense. It's just give LeBron the ball and let him do his thing. Uh, and you know LeBron and, and AD, I think is is arguably the best duo in the league. Of course, you mentioned the Clippers with uh, with Kawhi and Paul George is up there. Uh, some people would like the you know the Rockets with Harden and Westbrook, even though I'm not quite as high on that. But uh, they're they're up there for sure. And uh, it's interesting to me the I was listening to a real GM podcast with uh, Danny LaRue and, and he had Matt Moore on and he he seemed to think that he wasn't as high on the fit because LeBron wasn't a, you know a great pick and pop or isn't a great pick and pop passer and he rarely did that with Kevin Love but to me you know Anthony Davis despite the fact that he's versatile enough to be a pick and pop guy He's much more effective as a role man, and, and LeBron is one of the best pick-and-roll players in the entire league. Yeah, I agree. I think you'll see a lot of the rolling, and you know, even you can see last year, um, you know, JaVale McGee had one of his best seasons offensively when playing with LeBron. I know once LeBron went out, and, uh, you know, he struggled later in the season, but playing with LeBron, uh, you saw the easy looks JaVale got under the basket, uh, a lot of uh, drive and dishes. Um, you know, he doesn't have the pick and pop ability that Anthony Davis has, but I think LeBron will, you know, just the facilitator that he is, I think he's going to be able to figure that out pretty easily. And now, you know, you space the floor with some shooters as well. You know, you hope that Kuzma goes back to kind of some of his averages from the year one. And you have Danny Green in the corner as well. So you'll see better spacing than you did last year as well. So I think those things combined, you'll see, you know, LeBron go back to his ability to get to the basket a little bit easier, and then you have Anthony Davis waiting there for you. Yeah, and uh, Kevin O'Connor uh, wrote an article talking about uh, the, the Lakers in that duo, and, and he mentioned a stat in there where Anthony Davis scores 1.3 points per possession when rolling to the rim. So it's not only that LeBron is really good at making those passes, but Davis is an excellent guy at catching and finishing uh, whether that is, you know, catching the lob and dunking, but he's also got a pretty good floater game. He's got good touch. 
in that five feet and in range. Uh, but yeah, I think offensively it's going to be fantastic. And as you mentioned, we'll, we'll get to the rest of the roster here shortly, but they, they have done, and Plinka has done a better job of, uh, of making sure that there's enough shooting on this roster so that that pick and roll, uh, the, the defense sort of has to, uh, to pick its poison. But uh, I wanted to just go through uh, some of the moves that they made this offseason and uh, uh, just to, to break down the roster a little bit further. Avery Bradley, uh, you mentioned him. They signed him to a two-year, $10 million deal. Uh, he's a guy that, uh, you know, in the event that LeBron, as they said, is playing point guard, he's a guy that can defend point guards but then also play off the ball reasonably well. Uh, he, he had kind of a weird season last year where he was he was pretty awful in uh, with the Clippers but then was was really good with Memphis down the stretch. Uh, JaVale McGee, you also mentioned him. He's a he's a good role man for LeBron, especially uh, you know when Davis is off the floor. Uh, Demarcus Cousins, a, a, a really good get at one year, three point five million. He gives them a player with a little bit of upside that really wasn't out there on the market at the time that he signed. Uh, and then uh, they retain Rajon Rondo on a two year minimum deal. Jared Dudley, a one year, two point six million dollar contract. He's a guy that I think is uh, is underrated uh, throughout the league. He's a guy that can play some small ball five for them and also stretch the floor. And then they uh, they added a couple of two-way guys. They got uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo's uh, younger brother, Kostas, on a two-way contract. And then also a, a rookie from Gonzaga, Zach Norvell Jr., on a two-way. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they've done a lot better job, I think, this year of uh, making sure there's enough shooting on this roster. Yeah, it's interesting, right? When you look at some of the pickups this year, you kind of scratch your head, like, why didn't we do this last year again? Even with some of the coaching moves, right? Getting Phil Handy, hiring a shooting coach this year, some of the things that would have really helped the young guys last year. Um, year seems like a year too late with some of the veteran players, but definitely have a lot more mature roster than you did last year. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, getting Boogie Cousins uh, on the one-year deal, I, I think that's just a really great value pickup, especially... You know, after you know holding on, holding out for Kawhi and uh, not being able to get him, and kind of rebounding back from that, I thought that was a great signing. I think just see the camaraderie. If you look back at uh, you know with Cousins and Anthony Davis when they played together, that was one of Boogie's best seasons. So um, you know, come a year away from the Achilles injury, year you know one season away, kind of getting into year two, I think I expect to see a bounce back year for Boogie. Uh, you know, it's not going to be the year that he had. Uh, prior to the injury, but somewhere in the middle of what we saw last year and when uh, you know he was performing at his peak. So I think this is kind of that make or break year for uh, Boogie Cousins. So I'm expecting big things from him early on. It looks like he's already lost some weight, so that's gotten the folks out here excited to see that he's getting in shape. And you know, Anthony Davis has made it very clear in his press conference, a couple other interviews that I heard that. He does not prefer to play the five or as limited minutes at the five as possible. So having that combination of Boogie and McGee, I think that's going to go a long way for them this season. Yeah, Cousins, you know, I, I agree with you. I expect uh, he'll he'll look uh, better. You know, again, I think with, with most people that suffer that Achilles, it's, it's not the first year. You know, you come back in a year, but that first year that you play off of it, uh, is typically not the best. I think once you get to a year and a half, two years out, you can start to look a little bit more like yourself. But I think the big thing, especially with this Lakers team, if if they're going to go with LeBron playing more point and, and go with these big lineups, uh, it's going to be critical that DeMarcus Cousins refi- regains his shooting touch. Uh, you know, the, the, the previous couple of years, you know, leading into that Achilles injury, 
Uh, he shot around 36% from three, but then last year with Golden State, uh, shot, uh, you know, basically 27% from three. So, you know, that's going to be, to me, the, the biggest factor or whether or not he's going to be a, a big boost to this team because, again, we, we've already mentioned the LeBron AD pick and roll is so lethal, but if you're going to be playing Cousins out there with those uh, with those two, he's going to need to spread the floor. Definitely, and I think that's what's, you know, I know we'll uh, talk a little bit about the rotations, but it'll be interesting to see how much pairing up you see with Cousins and Anthony Davis or you stagger their minutes to kind of get them time separately to be able to spread the four with the bigs. I think last year's team, you really didn't have any you know, stretch four or fives, especially with Kuzma struggling. So um, I think that'll be key this year, especially if Boogie does end up coming off the bench to have someone that can uh, stretch the floor from the inside position, uh, you know, coming off the bench. See, I wanted to kind of break down uh, the, the roster in, 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 uh, in quite a bit of detail here and, and talk about position by position, what players sure. you imagine are going to get out ahead of their other guys and, and kind of win in terms of the depth chart. And uh, I, I kind of like to go with this in terms of not, you know, LeBron, they, they've said he's going to play point guard, but he's not going to be defending point guards. So I'm looking at this exercise more in terms of who's going to defend the opposition uh, player at that, at that spot. So at, at point guard on the roster, from what I've seen, that, you know, they've got Rajon Rondo, they re-signed him, uh, they brought back uh, Alex Caruso, uh, and then they also got uh, Quinn Cook from the Golden State Warriors. I think it's pretty interesting, you know, uh, Rondo and Caruso bring that uh, really good passing element, but then Quinn Cook seems to be more of a prototypical guy, like a, you know, a, a Daniel Gibson player that uh, can can just spot off the ball and, and uh, you know, shoot the ball well for LeBron. Right, yeah, some of the signings, like even Troy Daniels, Cook, you see that, you know, we have some of the shooting specialists this year. I actually see kind of at the point guard position, I, you know, kind of my surprise or, you know, player that's going to break out a little bit this year is Alex Caruso. Um, I think he's got the surprising kind of athleticism that you don't expect from him. And then, you know, he's done a pretty decent job defensively. I think some of his point guard skills in terms of, you know, his, he's turnover prone, so you'd like to see that cut down. But I think he's someone that, you know, you at least see the effort defensively, something that, you know, you no longer see from Rajon Rondo, who, uh, you know, really struggled defensively last year. Um, so I, I, I see Caruso as someone uh, that can really push for the backup point guard minutes, and I see Rondo more kind of limited, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, you know, if needed. I think that's someone you save for down the stretch or, you know, hopefully you get a chance to see a playoff Rondo this year. But I actually see Avery Bradley as the one, um, you know, that I think could potentially move into that starting lineup slide in next to Danny Green this year. Uh, you know, it'll depend on his health. Uh, he's also someone that, you know, should be getting in shape. You know, he's fought those injuries the last couple of years. But I see him as someone that, you know, could handle the ball, shoot a little bit. But defensively, uh, you know, at least in the past, he's shown that, that capability. Yeah, I, uh, I I tend to agree with you in terms of the you know the Rondo Caruso Cook trio. I don't really see any of them starting. Uh, they're just you know they they've got too many weaknesses. All three of them and uh, Cook, despite his ability to shoot, he's he's kind of a weak defender as well. And you already mentioned Rondo uh, has uh, has lacked in in his effort on that side of the floor. So yeah, I, I definitely could see Avery Bradley starting at. at and defending point guards. I could also see Contavious Caldwell-Pope. I mean, he's a, he's another guy similar to Bradley that uh, is is a pretty good defender on point guards, 
and doesn't need the ball in his hands. Uh, and, and what I find so interesting about, like, if that does end up being the battle as far as who will start at the one is they're both really coming off of pretty lousy years last year, especially offensively. Uh, but uh, when you know when they're playing at their best, both those guys have been valuable rotation pieces. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. I, I kind of went back and forth whether you know there's an opportunity for KCP to be in the starting lineup. I think where I still would go with Bradley over him is you know I understand that LeBron will be handling the ball the majority of the time, but if we needed you know there's some pressure on LeBron and he needs to you know pass that up or have someone else bring the ball up I would trust Avery Bradley probably over Danny Green or KCP to be able to handle that and that's where uh, that, that's why I'm going with uh, Avery Bradley to be in that starting lineup yeah giving Danny Green that role would uh, would not be a would not be a smart <laughs> move uh, but uh, but yeah I uh, I think we both can agree then that it'll be Danny Green at the two you know he was uh, you know after the the Kawhi fallout and the Lakers not being able to to get that third star. I think Danny Green was a perfect fit and a guy that uh, they could get and, and ended up being a pretty good plan B in my opinion. Uh, so yeah, he's most likely going to start at the two. And then the question becomes, you know, you you mentioned uh, Anthony Davis's uh, you know preference to to play at the four. So it. You know, I guess I'm going to ask you not only who you imagine is going to start, but who do you imagine is going to be kind of in the closing lineups as well? Do you imagine them consistently going big with with LeBron at the three, Davis at the four, and Cousins at the five? Or uh, you know, at the end of games, could you imagine them going a little bit smaller and playing AD at the five, LeBron at the four, and you know, bringing in another guy like a Kuzma, or you know, playing uh, you know KCP and Bradley together? Yeah, I, I think early on, it's. I think there's going to be a lot of experimental work going to be uh, done by Vogel just to see the different lineups. I think early on in this in the season, I think you'll see Davis uh, staying at the four with either you know the, most likely uh, Cousins in the in the closing lineup. But I think as the season goes on, uh, just depending on how Kuzma's performing, I could see him moving into the starting lineup or excuse me, the closing lineup. Um, I think just that versatility that he brings, uh, you know, if, with all shooters kind of around AD and LeBron, if you have, you know, Bradley, Green, and Kuzma, I think that could be an explosive lineup. I think it's really going to be matchup-based, you know, who they're playing, but against some of the teams that, you know, really don't have that big uh, big center, uh, I could see Anthony Davis moving to the five in the closing lineups. Probably against some of the bigger teams, uh, you know, you could see Cousins in there. But, so I think it will be matchup-based, but I think really the best closing lineup would be to have Kuzma and Davis and LeBron in the front court. Yeah, and uh, you know, you mentioned Kuzma, very versatile score, but he did only shoot 30% from three last season. I did see uh, a tweet he sent out. Uh, basically, he's tried to rework his, his shot in the offseason, and hopefully that'll help him uh, you know, boost those percentages. But but yeah, it'll it'll be fascinating to see because, you know, again, Worst case scenario, if Cousins and Kuzma continue to struggle from three, all of a sudden, despite the fact that they brought in a decent amount of shooting, the the Lakers may still struggle a little bit for spacing. Yeah, and it really, you know, once you get through Cousins and Kuzma, right, you're becoming dependent on Jared Dudley at that point, at least in the front court. Uh, So you really need one of those between Kuzma and Cousins to, you know, increase the rate of hoping Kuzma gets closer to his, uh, kind of his shooting percentage and 
his rookie season. I think he shot close to 36%. I think, as you mentioned, he's been working with, uh, I think goes by lethal shooter, um, you know, who's, you know, changed his form, has a higher release. So hopefully we start to see a little bit more consistent shooting from him rather than kind of the streakiness that we saw last year. But it's, you know, with kind of the lack of depth, you know, once you get through Cousins and David um, Kuzma in terms of shooting in the front court, uh, I think that's where, uh, you know, we're really counting on one of those guys. I don't think the plan is to play uh, Dudley heavy minutes anytime during the season. Yeah, and, and Dudley has been notoriously a little bit unreliable in terms of his ability to stay on the floor. He's, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, even just last postseason, he was a, a big spark plug for the Brooklyn Nets in that first round series against the Sixers, but then he, I believe he had a calf injury that kept him out a game or two, and that really hurt them. Uh, but uh, but I actually really like Dudley. You know, I, I think uh, getting him as kind of a failsafe in, in the event that uh, you just don't have enough spacing. And, you know, not only is he a good shooter, but he's a really high IQ player, I think a good locker room guy. Uh, but but you're absolutely right that uh, if you're relying on him on a, a night-to-night basis, maybe that's not a, a great sign. Who do you kind of see as the third option, Eggert, as the season goes on? Do you see it as Kuzma, or do you see maybe Boogie taking kind of that bigger step? You know, I I probably see it as uh, as cousins. It'll also depend a lot on on sort of the the defensive system they're going to run. But I think the fact that cousins and Davis already have uh, you know some chemistry from playing together, I think, is a positive sign. And again, you know, I think cousins uh, looking a little bit more like his uh, All NBA self. I don't think he's ever going to get fully back to that level. But if if he can get back to you know, solid starter level at the very least. I think he's going to probably take those minutes. And I, I think it's an interesting question, too, you know, with the likes of LeBron and Davis and Cousins, if if they're all playing well and, you know, all three of those guys can post up and, and, and score on mismatches, are the Lakers going to be able to be so big and so skilled that they're going to force teams to match their size? Yeah, I mean, could you imagine if, you know, at least... You know, they're going to have difficulties guarding maybe smaller guards, but if they decided closing lineup to go with LeBron and Danny Green in the backcourt with Cousins, Coos, and uh, Anthony Davis, that massive lineup could really cause some problems for uh, a lot of the teams in the league. Yeah, it, uh, it's certainly interesting. Uh, you know, they, they've got a lot more flexibility this year with the roster than they had last season. Uh, the the other thing about this roster, though, that is interesting to me is, you know, can you think of in this era uh, of a team that relied so heavily on their front court to score? I mean, this team really doesn't have much in the backcourt as far as shot creation. No, I mean, I, I think it was interesting, you know, sing back on some of the older uh, Laker teams, and obviously they had Kobe in, in the backcourt, but kind of one team that, you know, maybe a little comparison that you could do uh, is the early kind of the Laker teams with uh, Gasol, Bynum, and Odom, where, you know, they really kind of wreaked havoc with some of the versatility, being able to shoot and play in the post, being able to drive. So you can see some similarities to that where, you know, Bogey kind of more in the, in the Andrew Bynum role, but, you know, he's probably even more versatile and has the ability to shoot from outside. That's one of the teams I could think of, but, you know, obviously you still had Kobe in the, in the perimeter, so, uh, but that's kind of a team that, where the front court is, has that similar makeup. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a really good point, and it's, it's crazy to think that, uh, you know, again, we're gonna, at the end of this episode, break down our, 
our top five teams of the decade, and uh, it's crazy to think that that's already uh, you know that those teams are already basically a decade old at this point. Uh, so the the game has changed quite a bit even since then. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, another team even if we, if we're going to go back way way into the uh, you know into the past, the, the '86 Celtics, you know, with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and uh, and Robert Parrish, they were a team that really uh, you know heavily relied on that front court in there you know, arguably considered the, the greatest team in NBA history. Yeah, um, definitely. But it'll just be interesting kind of in this, you know, three-ball era to see how that plays out. I mean, you know, I guess there's definitely when everyone zigs, you zag, but we'll see how, how that really plays out once uh, the season gets going. Yeah, that's the that's the encouraging thing, right, about this team is if things go right, you could see them having big lineups that really work. You mentioned the, the lineup with, with Danny Green, LeBron, Kuzma, Davis, and Cousins. But you could also see a lineup with, uh, you know, even LeBron at the five, say, or, you know, LeBron and Davis at the four and five with, you know, Danny Green sliding down to the three, and then you, you bring out, like, a Avery Bradley and a Contavious Caldwell-Pope. You know, you, you could see different variations of this team working both small and big, and uh, as you know, and, and as the Raptors showed in a lot of ways this postseason, having that versatility to play different ways is is so crucial to getting through not only one playoff series, but, you know, the hope of winning a title and getting through four. Yep, and not to mention, you know, they, they are leaving that one open roster spot on the team just to see, you know, how the buyout market plays out. And everyone in L.A. is keeping their fingers crossed for a Andre Iguodala buyout, even though I don't think it's as likely, but someone like that I, I still think that they're you know missing someone you know, I, th- I think if, if I think of LeBron teams just someone that can create their own shot or create for others and you know at a high level uh, you know you had obviously you had Kyrie and Dwayne Wade and you're not going to get that in, in, from a buyout market but I, that's one thing that I still see lacking on this team when you you know look at some of the guards that we talked about Bradley Green KCP is there's not one player on the guard position that can really create their own shot and to me that's still a concern is are you able to get someone that you know could take that pressure off LeBron you know you know especially we know some of the injuries that we start seeing last year you know we'll see how he holds up this year but just that you know third player at least from the guard side that can create their own shot I think that's something that's still missing from this team yeah and uh you know as far as buyout candidates go it's uh you know it's it's going to be tough because they don't have a ton of resources, you know, cap-wise to, to give anything more than the minimum. And, you know, perhaps, a, you know, they're, they're good enough at that time that, that players are willing to take a little bit less. You know, they, they might be offered more from other teams but want to compete with the Lakers and, and, and choose that anyway. But also the other, the other big issue is they don't really have much to do in terms of trading. Uh, you know, the, the Clippers, despite uh, their haul of picks they used to, to acquire Paul George, they still have their, uh, you know, their their first round pick for this year to, to throw at teams. So it seems like some of these other contenders might have a little bit more in terms of uh, assets to to acquire that extra player. Yeah, I, mean, I think it most likely, as you mentioned, will be a player that's willing to come on in the veterans minimum. I think it's like Kyle Korver was an option that you know with him going to Milwaukee. So it's dwindling down. Um, uh, well, you know, what, I guess what's the line during the season until we hear the next Carmelo Anthony uh, rumors start to pop up again. Yeah. Well, and uh, speaking of Kyle Korver, I already saw on Twitter today that uh, 
Corver is uh, is already out there working with Giannis and proving the Greek freak's jumper. So watch out, NBA, for next season. <laughs> Scary thought for uh, the rest of the league. <laughs> yes, the uh, the the buyout time is going to be definitely very interesting. Uh, but uh, but I do really like the the flexibility and the depth of this roster, and obviously the the star power of their their two main guys. Uh, so uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of. Load management, of course, that was popularized with uh, Greg Popovich and the Spurs dating back to when Tim Duncan was still around. Uh, but, uh, you know, the the Raptors doing it with Kawhi Leonard, sitting him out for 20-plus games. Are we at a stage in LeBron's career uh, where you would expect Frank Vogel to maybe give him, uh, you know, rest throughout the season, and, and possibly even Davis as well? I think so. I think definitely with... Uh Know, with LeBron, I think a couple years uh, left on the contract, I think you want to make sure that you know get peak performance from him. Uh, I think one, you know, I guess kind of the silver lining from early exit this year is LeBron had a long summer uh, or is having a long summer to recover after you know eight seasons of getting to the finals. So hopefully, you know, he's getting to heal up there. But I still see LeBron playing, you know, sixty-five to seventy games during the season. Um, I think. Just having a viable backup in Kyle Kuzma could fill in with some of the scoring for him. Um, you know, in the tough West, I think it's 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 a little bit difficult than it would be if he was still in the East, uh, just with the competition out West. But I think at this point in his career, turning 35, 36, you're going to have to give him a couple nights off here and there based on the matchup, especially uh, where you know you can have someone like Anthony Davis to hopefully you can depend on to carry you for a night. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting, though. You know, you you talked about uh, that they don't have much shot creation in the backcourt, and uh, you you can probably get away with that when you have a guy like LeBron. But on the in the event that they were to give him a night off, do you see enough shot creation from the likes of Davis, Cousins, and Kuzma for them to be still a you know a competitive team when when he rests? I think with you know when LeBron's out, I think that's when you'll see some of the minutes pick up for Rajon Rondo, uh, for Alex Caruso. I think those are probably the two biggest you know best ball handlers on the team outside of LeBron. Uh, you know who may not be able to you know I think Caruso can still create some shots from even Rondo at his age uh, does a decent job of getting to the basket. Maybe not finishing as well as he used to, but you know can get to the basket and you know has some nifty layups. Uh, Caruso has the ability to finish as well. I think you'd actually see those guys step up a little bit more in LeBron's absence, even more than a Danny Green or Avery Bradley. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and you know, a, a lot of those, you know, you could see uh, Rajon Rondo, Demarcus Cousins, and AD trio out there, and they'll be like the Pelicans from just a few seasons ago. <laughs> right. Uh, so I think low dosage Rondo, you know, when you get those in, you know, a game here and there, you know, twenty five minutes here and there, if, if needed, those spot starts, I think he can be really effective in those situations. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a fair point. Now uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of how the Lakers stack up. Uh, in this uh, really competitive Western Conference, uh, you know we we've talked for years and years about how the West is is incredibly stacked. It doesn't seem like it's quite as top heavy as it uh, as it used to be. You know, uh, in the years where where Houston and Golden State were really peaking, uh, but uh, it still is a very very competitive conference. So, how do you feel the the Lakers match up? And you know, since we're we're talking in July, we can't really discuss anything other than how they stack up on paper. Right. Uh, you know, I, I still see uh, them kind of in, 
in the middle there of you know the fourth, fifth seed as, as we get get going in the season. I think some of the teams that have you know have been together for a couple of years and have just added pieces on. I, I see those teams staying at the top. So likes of Utah and Denver, I see them having really solid regular seasons and possibly being the one or two seed. Um, you know, with the Clippers, I think talent wise, they definitely have the potential to be the number one seed. But I think. You know, we talked about load management. If there's one team, especially with the surgeries to Paul George, I think those are some concerns. And the load management to Kawhi, where maybe they don't really need to be the number one seed in the regular season. And, uh, you know, they finish a little bit lower uh, in the third or fourth seed. So I see the Lakers battling right there, you know, with the Clippers, the Rockets, and, and Lakers between those three for, you know, for the three to five seed. Uh, I see Denver and Utah, as I mentioned, kind of at the top of the standings, especially in the regular season. We're in total agreement there, yeah. I think both L.A. teams can really look at this regular season and, and just focus on getting to the play the playoffs and uh, you know the, then having the talent to, to really beat anybody on the road as well once they get there. So, uh, Zeeshawn, I'm going to put you on the spot and I'm going to ask for a season prediction. Not only, uh, you know, how do you, how do you feel they're going to rank on, uh, on both ends of the floor, but, uh, how, you know, is this season going to end up with a... Uh, Larry O'Brien trophy back with the Lakers organization. Yeah, that, that's, uh, you are definitely putting me on the spot this early in the season. We'll see. Um, in terms of, you know, I think offensively, I think it, to me, it just seems like the Anthony Davis, LeBron James fit just, I, I think it should be a pretty smooth transition there. I think the complimentary pieces around them, you know, barring that they stay healthy, uh, you know, I, I expect a pretty, uh, you know, top five kind of offensive season from uh, the two of them. Defensively, I, I still see some struggles, especially at the guard. I think Danny Green, as we mentioned, um, you know, but just with the talented guards in the West, I think that's going to be some struggles, uh, especially if LeBron starts to, you know, I think there's going to be some figuring out in terms of where to place LeBron in the offense, especially if he's playing point guard. Overall, you know, um, you know, will the Larry Bryan Trophy, you know, come back to LA or just the Lakers? I think that's the key question now. Right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe the Lakers or uh, the Clippers. Uh, you know, I I think you know you know depending on uh, you know how the roster shapes out with the trade deadline and if they make any other moves, I think you know that there's so many teams in the conversation to be in the finals, especially coming out of the West. Uh, I think it's gonna be really interesting. I, I, I see them as a Western Conference final uh, potential team, um, and I, it's one of the teams that you know if they get to the finals, I, I can see them winning it all. But I think. You know, overall, I, I still would put the Clipper roster slightly ahead in a seven-game series. Yeah, uh, it'll be uh, it'll be really fascinating. And and you mentioned, uh, you know, the the two LA teams are probably in the top five in terms of your your favorites to 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 hold that trophy. I, I was just curious to get your sense. You know, you're in LA, and uh, you know the. The, the Lakers have, you know, this this new huge duo. The Clippers now have this this great duo in Kawhi and Paul George. Uh, you know, I, I saw even that, uh, you know, the I don't really follow the NHL too much, but apparently the Kings are, uh, are, are pretty solid as well, and they're even now selling these uh, premier passes where you get uh, access to every game for all three teams, and, and now people are actually considering that. But I wanted to just get your sense of the uh, the excitement in the area, in the city, for uh for their sports teams yeah i think you know you know you have the dodgers doing well you know at the same time so i think there's just a buzz around the city i think you know after you know it's been six years so there's definitely uh 
you know, some frustrated fans out there, but I think for the first time, uh, there's a sense of excitement. And I think in, in some ways, you know, Kawhi going to the Clippers, yes, it, you know, I think it was uh, bummed out a lot of the Laker fans because, you know, there's a hope there where you're really a dynasty. You didn't probably get, you know, the highest, uh, you know, what you're looking to achieve this offseason. But there's a different sense of excitement. And, you know, I think, you know, the Clippers have always been looked as the, the younger brother and, uh, you know, they've kind of beaten you up over the last couple of years, even though they haven't been able to get, you know, to the Western Conference Finals. But at the same time, they're a legit threat to this team, I think. Uh, I think it's, you know, we haven't seen a Laker-Clipper playoff matchup in the past, so I think that's something that really would uh, take basketball to the next level in L.A. I mean, it's all it's all you hear when you turn on the sports radio here, no matter how good the other teams are doing it. It's still a Laker town, but I think people are looking forward to that rivalry uh, being amped up this year, and especially how, you know, some of the perception in terms of how, you know, Kawhi uh, free agency was handled and whether the Lakers were played or not I think maybe it's creating a little bit of bitter feelings between the teams so it'll be fun to see yeah I cannot wait for uh, that first regular season matchup between the two hopefully uh, you know it's a it's a question mark in in today's league but hopefully everybody all the stars are out there and playing when that happens that will be a, a very exciting game to watch let's uh let's move on to uh to our all decade teams again uh, Zeeshawn and I both came up with our list separately uh we're we're speaking to uh between the you know the decade between 2009-10 season and this most recent 18-19 season that is the 10-year gap that uh, that we are covering uh but uh, Zeeshan why don't you get us started with uh, your number five team on your list yeah this was actually a lot of fun Garrett just to kind of go down memory lane look at some of the teams you know you always have that recency bias so just kind of start to look back at some of the older teams um well, hopefully, you know, this is not just a biased opinion on my end now that we've talked about the Lakers for the last 45 minutes, but I actually do have the 2009-2010 Lakers as the number five team. Uh, really, I know we're looking at just the last decade, but that was the team kind of in the third year of, you know, being in the finals, but really the same core of that team. So uh, and being able to, you know, compete and beat the Celtics, I think that was the yeah, something that, you know, at least for Kobe's career was a big achievement, something that he wanted to do to kind of validate his standing as a Laker. So, um, you know, with some of the versatility within that lineup that we talked about earlier with our test and Odom, Powell, um, you know, I think that's, and I think uh, Bynum as well. So, you know, that lineup, I think that was one of the, you know, first big versatile lineups that you had that you can play, you know, two bigs together, two stretch fours together. Um, and so I have that at number five. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I I was kind of expecting that from you. Uh, yeah. um, I, I'm I'm actually slightly surprised they're not a little bit higher. But uh, yeah, they um, you know they obviously were were a fantastic team, and it culminated in in, in a brilliant NBA Finals between the, the Lakers and the Boston Celtics. That uh, the Lakers ended up winning in a a grueling Game Seven, where Ron Artest ended up making a bunch of uh, amazing shots, and and Pau Gasol just dominated the offensive boards. Uh, but but yeah, you know, not only having, uh, you mentioned earlier, having that perimeter star in Kobe, but then also the, the size and skill that they had on, in the front court, uh, you know, they, they could match up pretty well with just about anybody. Uh, the, the, the only reason I, I had them, you know, in consideration, but the reason I didn't quite is just looking at their you know their offensive and defensive metrics. They were they were 11th in offensive rating that year and and fourth in defensive rating, which again you know pretty solid marks. 
But, uh, you know, when, when we're talking about uh, the best teams from this decade, they, they just kind of fell a little bit too short there for me. Yeah, I think, especially that year, I think they'd won eight plus games in the year before, so they were definitely on their downswing, but uh, kind of gave them, you know, probably a little hometown bias, but also gave them credit kind of being the you know third year in the finals and with having that same core. But uh, I could see, you know, especially I think when I was looking through this list, really once you go through, you know, five or eight or nine, you can kind of really go back and forth and make arguments for any of these teams, and they're all great teams probably on this list. Yeah, so uh, my number five pick, was the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers. And, uh, of course, this Cavs team, led by LeBron James and uh, and Kyrie Irving, ended up uh, beating the Golden State Warriors in seven games. Uh, they uh, That season were the third-ranked uh, offense and the 10th-ranked defense. They won 57 games during the regular season and, and finished the postseason 16-5 and overall. Uh, but that team just so effective offensively, so tough to stop. I mean, having not one but two guys that uh, were were just impossible to defend one-on-one, as well as having all of that shooting out there on the floor uh, and, and uh, the, the offensive rebounding of Tristan Thompson to get them second chances. They were just such a dominant offense. And out of all of the, the LeBron teams in that uh, second uh, second reunion with uh, with him and the Cavs, uh, they were the best uh, of those four groups defensively. Yeah, and you know, especially I mean, you're beating a you know taking down a historic team that year. You know, LeBron averaging nearly a triple double in the finals, and Kyrie with the big shot, uh, the chase down blocks. There's just so many visually just memorable plays from those finals as well. You know, I think when I looked at the list, we're looking at the regular season, you're looking at kind of who you played in the you know they they were right outside my top five, but um, you know I, I think. Coming back down 3-1 against one of the best teams in the history uh, of the league, I, I think that's definitely something incredible. I think, you know, there are some things in terms of, you know, how that final shifted with, you know, one kick from Draymond, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that really changed the shape of the finals. But, uh, you know, that, that was definitely a great team, and uh, I think Kyrie, you know, really kind of set that expectation that year of, you know, what we were thinking we'd get from him for, for the remainder of his career. Oh yeah, we're we're definitely going to talk more about that finals as we get down further on my list. Uh, but uh, I'm curious now to hear uh, who you've got uh, at at your number four spot. Yeah, at the number four spot, uh, I have the 2017-18. I have the I have the Warriors from uh, their second uh, championship. I, I think you know they were finished 15 and 24, first in the West. They were still you know dominant in the playoffs at 16 and five. I think they had the largest point differential in the finals against the Cavs that year at over 15 points per game. Um, you know, overall, that was the second year with KD. I, I thought, uh, you know, they really uh, just felt like, you know, going watching them in the finals, I, there was just no chance they had weapons all around that court. Yeah, you know, this was a team that they would have made my top five, but I kind of uh, did an unwritten rule that I didn't tell you about where I, I only picked one iteration of each team. You know, obviously there are teams that have multiple years of success and, and uh, you know, the Warriors had three years with Kevin Durant uh, and then a couple of years without him. And then also, you know, you going back to the LeBron James Heat teams, you know, they won a couple of titles. The Spurs made the finals back-to-back years. So I, I tried to stick to just uh, a single iteration of each team. But absolutely, if, if I didn't have that rule, they would have been uh, on this list. They were a fantastic team. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the, the fact that they were able to to sweep the Cavs, despite the fact that the Cavs were a little bit of a, a weaker team, obviously with uh, without uh, without Kyrie, 
that year. Uh, but uh, the the way they they went through the season was really impressive, and of course, just the the level of talent that they had on the roster through this run with with Curry, Durant, Thompson, and Green is is just uh, you know th- they had more talent than than any team in the history of the league. Absolutely. Now, uh, my number four is the 2013 Miami Heat, and uh, you know the that Heat team, of course, went on that 27 game win streak, won 66 games during the regular season. Uh, had a uh, an, a pretty impressive postseason, although they got tested uh, in both the conference finals by the Pacers and the NBA finals by the Spurs. Uh, they were second on uh, on offense and ninth on defense. And similar to you mentioning uh, the the NBA finals that that uh, you know in 2016 the Cavs maybe uh, got a little bit lucky. I would say that uh, the Heat got a little bit lucky in their run to that championship that season. Yeah, they that, had that one rebound away, right? Uh, you know, with uh, Duncan not getting back in the lineup, the, the tip to Allen. Um, you know, we'll get to this, but I did have them even higher in my rankings. I actually, I don't know if you're okay with me here, kind of jumping to where I had them since you've already mentioned them. I actually had them as my number two team okay. uh, in my rankings. So um, that was just a dominant team to me. And, you know, I think they had 12 double-digit wins in the postseason as well. Uh, which tied, this, uh, I think, the Spurs, the 14, and the, the 16-17 Warriors. So they were dominant in the playoffs. Um, and just, you know, they had shooters all around as well, you know, with the James Jones and Mike Millers and Ray Allen. So uh, that was, you know, by far to me the best Heat team. Yeah, they, um, you know, yeah, definitely the adding adding Ray Allen in 2013 was absolutely crucial to, to what that team was trying to accomplish. And then, you know, getting Shane Battier in 2012 also, having having better chemistry with him in the lineup as well. They they really had that spacing and, and that collective defense. Again, they were, you know, top 10 on, on both ends of the floor. Uh, so so you, you already mentioned your two, but let's hear uh, who you had at number three. Yeah, at three, I actually had the 2013-2014 San Antonio Spurs. Okay. Um, had them at, you know, they were 62-20, and 20, first and finished first in the West. They did get that first-round scare, right? Or if you remember, I think, against the Mavs, that took them to seven. But I just remember them, in, you know, in the finals, just so dominant, where I think it was, you know, you're like, oh, this is how this game is meant to be played, just the way that they passed the ball around with, you know, Kawhi kind of showing up that year. You had the Bellinelli and Diaw and Ginobili and Bonner. So, you know, the Danny Green. So just had such good role players, you know, fit around. I think Tony Parker uh, led them in scoring that year, both in the regular season and playoffs. It just felt like a balanced, well-oiled machine, kind of the peak when you think of the Spurs and Popovich and Duncan. Like, that's kind of what I picture the way that they were playing the finals that year. Okay, I'm, I'm really glad you picked them and at this spot because at, at my number three spot, I have the Spurs, but I actually have a different season. I have the 2012-13 Spurs that actually lost uh, to the 2013 Miami Heat. And most people might think I'm crazy for putting the Spurs ahead of the Heat, but as we talked about, you know, the Spurs were, were one rebound away from closing out that, that Heat team in six games. Uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes luck happens, but, you know, I, I tend to try to think of things in terms of, you know, a simulation. If if that series was played a hundred times, honestly, I think the Spurs probably win it seven, 70 times. I think, you know, the, the craziness of, 
of uh, of that closing sequence of Game Six. The fact that Shane Battier went like I think seven for seven from three in that Game Seven, which was another tight game that nobody talks about because of the craziness of of Game Six. Mike Miller and Mario Chalmers shot the lights out from three. Now, yes, for for the Spurs in 2013, Danny Green shot it absolutely, uh, you know. Like crazy, he had held the record for most threes made in a finals up until I think Steph broke it. Uh, but, but you know, Ginobili, I think, played pretty poorly. And when you compare the, the 2013 Spurs to the 2014 Spurs as far as the regular season, I, I thought it was interesting to see that they, they were identical in terms of offensive and defensive ratings. Both seasons, they were seventh on offense and third on defense. And and the big differential is the the 2014 Spurs won 62 games compared to the 2013 Spurs winning 58. But uh, you know when you look at uh, in terms of games played, Kawhi Leonard played eight fewer games in in 2013. Tony Parker played two less. Ginobili played eight fewer, uh, and uh, Tim Duncan played five fewer games. Uh, so I think that four game differential was in large part just due to the fact that they were a little bit healthier. Uh, but you know, I think the fact that the Spurs nearly beat a much better Heat team in 2013 uh, is is the more impressive feat than beating a team that you know, with Dwayne Wade sort of uh, you know going out of his prime and and definitely suffering from age related regression in 2014. The fact that they they just ran over that Heat team, I didn't think was quite as impressive of a feat. Yep, no, I could see that, and you know, from a Spurs time, basically the same iteration, kind of what we talked about, right? But with the two seasons, so uh, I could definitely see either one of those teams being uh, uh, on this list. Yeah, and you know Tony Parker, I think was uh, and, and Tim Duncan were were a little bit better in 2013 than in 14. But obviously, the the basketball that the Spurs played in that 2014 NBA Finals was just you know it it's how everybody wants the game to be played. You know, it was the beautiful beautiful game. So yeah, I, I have no qualms with uh, with you picking the 2014 version. Uh, I certainly think it's a it's a tough tough debate. But uh, you mentioned your your two pick was the the 2013 Heat, right? Yep. So I'll I'll go now to my number two, and uh, I'm going to pick the 2016 Golden State Warriors. Now uh, again, like the 2013 Spurs, this is uh, my two and three teams didn't end up winning the championship, which I, I know most people would consider insane. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the 2016 Warriors won 73 games, you know, broke the NBA record for regular season, greatest regular season team of all time. They were first on offense, they were fifth in defense, and, uh, you know, pretty much right away it seemed like they were, uh, uh, the, you know, the basketball gods were against them with Steph in that first round slipping on Donatus Montiunis's sweat and, uh, you know, spraining his MCL. He was never the same for the rest of the postseason. Uh, but uh, that step from that regular season was, you know, it's, it's to me, the, the greatest offensive season that any player has had in the history of the game. Yeah, and, yeah, I, they, were, they are on my list, and, well, outside the top five, so I definitely have no, you know, no issues with you having them, uh, you know, high at number two, I think. Probably on my end, I, I did really... Probably weigh the championship or winning it all a little bit, a little bit higher. But I, I could see the approach that you took. You know, kind of as you mentioned, if you know, if we had to pick one of these teams to, you know, you know, put all, you know, sell our house on, like who is it going to be? You know, that Warriors team is probably one or two that you could put them up. You know, that seventy three nine team is like if you had to bet it all, you probably would put it on that team. So I could see uh, kind of the approach that you took there as well. 
Yeah, I mean, again, if you if you simulate that uh, that 2016 finals a hundred times, I'd say the Warriors win it like 98, maybe 99 times. And the the one time that it happened was the one that actually happened in reality. Uh, but uh, the fact that you know Steph was was not a hundred percent. You had the of course the Draymond Green suspension in a very crucial Game Five where the Warriors had stolen Game Four on the road, had all the momentum going home to close it out, but then didn't have their best defensive player out there for that Game Five. The Cavs win that game, take back momentum, and go home. Game Six, Steph gets in foul trouble in the first quarter. Uh, you also have the the injury issues with Andrew Bogut getting hurt in Game Five and Kerr electing to play Festus Azili in Game 7 for some reason that I'll never understand. And then, uh, you know, also Harrison Barnes was, uh, you know, playing pretty well through the first four games and then just uh, happened to get in the worst shooting slump of his career for Games 5 through 7. So many crazy things happened, and yet the Warriors were still, uh, you know, a, a crazy Kyrie three away from potentially winning the title despite all of that. And you, you kind of even imagine, right, if that all of those things that you mentioned don't play out, how do the following seasons, how does that shape the league, right? If LeBron doesn't get that ring in Cleveland, if, you know, the Warriors win that championship, I don't think Katie's coming to Golden State. So that, you know, yeah, maybe they lost that one, but they won the next two, right? And does that even happen if, you know, KD doesn't go there? So you know, maybe they took one step back to take two steps forward. Um, so, you know, just you know looking back at some of these things it's always interesting to see how the rest of the league shaped out because of some of the decisions that were made from you know the outcome of one series yeah and uh you you don't tend to think much about like how the teams got there and how that affects them as well but one of the teams that was in my honorable mentions which was the the 2016 oklahoma city thunder uh, that was a team that pushed the Warriors to the absolute brink. It seemed like the Thunder were built to defend the Warriors, and yet Golden State was still able to to get through that series. But it seemed to take quite a physical toll for them to get through that. And coming down, coming back from down three one themselves, and you know the Cavs, despite losing a couple games to that 2016 Raptors squad, really didn't take that team seriously and, and got through the East pretty easily without much turmoil. Uh, so, you know, just going into that finals to start, the Warriors were a little bit more banged up and, and a little bit more fatigued. I think if I remember correctly, I mean, they're probably just, what, one Clay Thompson hot streak away from uh, making it to the finals, right? I think the Thunder had him on the ropes, and then Clay just caught fire. I can't remember if it was game six or seven there, but that really uh, did it for the Warriors. Yeah, so now I'm, I'm curious to hear who you've got at, uh, at your number one slot. I think we might have the same team. Yeah, I've got the 2016-2017 Warriors. Yep. <laughs> so we finally got one, Garrett. We finally uh, agreed on the one, <laughs> number one there. So that, that I mean, that team, what, I mean, probably the most dominant playoff run, right, in terms of record, definitely going 16-1, and started 15-0. and um, You know, Kevin Durant was just dominant in the finals. You had Katie and Steph both averaging, uh, you know, in their high 20s, 28 points per game for the playoffs. So... So overall, you know, 67 and 15. So even if you think of, you know, this is like a year removed from when they set the NBA record, you know, getting, what, 73 wins. I and mean, the following season, they followed up with 67 wins. They're only six games off of the record. So it's still incredible how well they played that regular season to keep that motivation up and then, you know, finish the job with uh, KD. 
Yeah, and it, it was funny looking at this. You know, you, you mentioned it. The, the 2016 Warriors won 73 games, but in terms of their expected one-loss numbers based on their statistics, they, they were only expected to win 65 but just got to 73 through crazy clutch play, especially from, from Steph Curry, of course. There was that, that shot he hit from about 35 feet at the basically at the buzzer to beat the Thunder in, in one of the greatest regular season games I've seen uh, in my lifetime. Uh, but uh, that 2017 team won 67, and they were actually expected to win 67. They didn't actually outperform their their numbers. Uh, so th- they were first on offense that season and second on defense. So statistically, in a lot of ways, even in the regular season, they were a more impressive team than than the team that broke those records. Uh, and as you mentioned, the the 16 and one stretch in the postseason just absolutely dominant. And of course, you know, that first season with KD, you had him fully locked in on the defensive end. You still had a very motivated uh, Draymond Green during the regular season on the defensive end. Of course, a lot of those players on that roster were coming off of the the heartbreak of losing the previous season's finals, so they were still very much motivated to to show that they were the best team in the league. And and yeah, that that team I think is uh, you know not only the the top team in this decade but uh, arguably the greatest team of all time. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there. I mean, you know, you had arguably the three of the maybe top five, or, you know, some will argue the three best shooters in the history of the NBA on one team. Um, You know, and they were really all clicking for most of the year all at the same time. So I think, you know, that era of basketball, that dominance, it's going to be interesting kind of going into next season to – maybe not have that, not have that clear-cut favorite kind of as we've had, you know, but as we saw this year uh, with sports, it's not just the talent, you know, there, there's some luck that's needed, so, um, you know, that, that didn't continue, but I think looking back on it, it's going to be, you know, a couple, couple of years there that we're always going to look back on and say, you know, that we really witnessed uh, greatness. Yeah, so uh, I'm curious to hear, uh, we, we both had a few honorable mentions, a few teams we were considering. Uh, who, are, who are a couple of your teams that we haven't gotten to yet? Yeah, I, I think the team that I, you know, one of the teams I had was the 2011 Maps. They're probably not, I guess it's a little bit different, maybe not the greatest team, but in terms of, you know, saying of just greatest playoff run, I think what Dirk did that postseason, the teams that they beat, you know, maybe not so much in the regular season, and they're third in the West, but the run that they had in the playoffs, and you would probably see by my rankings, I put a lot more focus in, on, on how they did in the, the teams in the playoffs, but, you know, to sweep the Laker team, the, the Thunder, with the talent that they had at that time, and to come back and beat the Heat, and just the way Dirk played in those playoffs, his dominant performance throughout, you know, the 16 wins, as I, I can remember. Yeah, I uh, I mentioned this on my pod last week with uh, with James Trigger when we were, were talking about our uh, all decade all NBA teams. But uh, yeah, I I had Dirk as my center on my all decade offensive team. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know yeah, just uh, I mentioned these stats in in that episode, but I'm just going to mention them again because they're. Uh, just so incredible, and, and this might be a little bit painful for you to hear, uh, but uh, in that uh, second-round sweep of the Lakers, he shot 57.4% from the field and, and over 72% from three in that series. Uh, and then uh, in the in the conference finals against the Thunder, averaged over 32 points per game on 55.7% from the field. And then also uh, averaged per game, got to the free-throw line 12.2 times a game and made 11.8 of those. 
just absolutely sensational. And I agree with you. You know, uh, just just statistically, they don't uh, they don't really stack up against a lot of these teams. They were they were eighth on offense and eighth on defense that season. So you know, really good, but but not quite elite at at some of these other teams' levels. They won fifty seven games. Dirk missed a little bit of time that year. I think he missed nine games, but while uh, while he played, they they basically wanted a sixty win pace. Uh, and you know they were sixteen and five in the postseason. Had a really solid postseason run, and that was just another one of those teams similar to the twenty fourteen Spurs that just played the right way. They ha- they seemed to have a chemistry and enjoy playing with each other, and they were just really fun to watch. Yeah, just had you know people hitting shots at the right time. Just you know, JJ Barea, the Laker killer. You know he he gave me nightmares for uh, that series, and just always found a way to get in there and get those buckets, you know, you still had Jason Kidd and Sean Marion, so, uh, you know, you had just folks hitting big shots at the right time, but, I mean, Dirk, just going back to him, like, how incredible he was during that series against, literally, the lineup that he went against, you know, the matchups that he faced, I mean, he just dominated. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, he, he had really figured out, you know, the, there was, of course, that, that 2006 NBA Finals where, where Dirk uh, and, and the Mavericks were up 2-0 against the Heat, and then Dwayne Wade and Shaq brought the Heat back, and, and uh, you know, Dirk suffered from that defeat, and then the following year he won the regular season MVP and then had the, the uh, embarrassment of losing in the first round to that We Believe Warriors team. Uh, so, you know, he went through his struggles and his suffering and, and uh, of, you know, people saying, oh, you can just put a smaller defender on him and, uh, you know, that'll slow him down because he can't drive past him. But but Dirk over the years just got better and better and realized what his weaknesses were and and, and got better at attacking those. And, and by 2011, he truly was unstoppable. Yep. Was, was there anyone on your list that uh, we didn't get to? Well, yeah, I, I mentioned uh, I mentioned the Thunder. Of course, uh, I just wanted to get a little more detail on them. They they finished second on offense that season, thirteenth on defense, but uh, really uh, ramped up the defense come playoff time. Uh, and you know that was a team that won fifty five games, but their expected one loss was at fifty nine. And of course, you've got the star power of uh, of Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. You've got the perimeter defense of uh, of Robertson. And you had the uh, the interior play of Stephen Adams and Serge Ibaka. That was a really well rounded two way team that was was excellent and again pushed one of the greatest teams of all time to the brink in that Western Conference Finals. Uh, the the only other team I, I figured we we might as well mention the most recent champion, the Toronto Raptors. Uh, you know they they were a team that they won fifty eight games. Uh, they were fifth in the league in offense, fifth in defense. Uh, finished the playoffs with a 16 and 8 record, so you know the postseason record not that impressive. But when you factor that uh, they they faced a, a really brutal, uh, a brutally tough schedule to get through the Eastern Conference in the Philadelphia 76ers in round two, and then the Bucks in round three, both of those teams I thought were were worthy adversaries. And then the Warriors, even without Durant, were a tough NBA Finals matchup. They uh, they were able to get through all of that and. Uh, and won the championship in what will now be the lone Kawhi Leonard season there in Toronto. Yeah, and I, I think that team probably had you know higher uh, offensive ratings than the the Mavs team that we talked about. But to me, in a lot of ways, I didn't think of them as you know when we look at this list. I mean, these are all great teams that why they're not in the upper echelon there, but very similar to the Mavs where you just had that run, you had that one dominant player, and then you had just great role players all around that came in and hit big shots, timely shots, 
So I see this team, the Raptors team this year, very comparable to the Mavs team uh, that we just talked about. Yeah, and uh, as we as we uh, move towards uh, the the decade of the 2020s, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see if LeBron James has the ability to, uh, you know, write one more chapter in the uh, in the in the legacy of LeBron James as one of the greatest players of all time and 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 bring the Lakers back to the mountaintop. It'll be fascinating to see. But Zeeshawn, this was uh, this was a heck of a lot of fun, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate it. I think, you know, going into next year, that big storyline will be, you know, who's going to be that first superstar to get uh, win championship with three different teams, right? Will it be Kawhi? Will it be LeBron? But, um, you know, I have a feeling that LeBron, I think just with the criticisms that he's heard, just the ability to rest, I think he's going to come up with a big season. I think he's more motivated than ever before, especially playing with Davis. I think uh, it's going to be a lot of fun uh, next year. Yeah, as it always is. Again, thanks so much. Thank you, Greg. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that, uh, that really helps a lot. If, uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or, uh, or ideas for, uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter, at Garrett Bouguet, and also uh, my email is g-bouguet at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to, uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from, uh, from the people listening to the program. And uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Leftovers or... The DMV. Number 97. Or. House cleaning. Or. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.